Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. If you travel enough around the world, you'll occasionally stumble across people and locations that seem so out of place, so different than their environment. You might think you've stumbled into an episode of The Twilight Zone. Take, for example, the number of German enclaves you'll find throughout South America. Scattered throughout countries such as Argentina, Bolivia, Peru, and Brazil, you can find a number of towns and villages settled by people of Germanic descent who brought with them their architecture and customs and who have turned their home away from home into places where it's Oktoberfest every day. For the most part, the German diaspora really got going in the 19th century when thousands of German citizens began leaving their homeland looking to make a fresh start in other countries. Many spread out across Europe, while others hopped on a boat and settled in the United States. By the time World War II began, the term Volksdeutsch, or ethnic Germans, began being used by members of the Nazi party to describe Germans living without German citizenship outside of the Third Reich. Adolf Hitler eventually forbade use of the term because he saw it as being used in a derogatory manner against members of his own people who had already established a presence in parts of the world Hitler had an interest in. Today the term most commonly used is Auslandsdeutsch to describe German expatriates and other German citizens living abroad. Some of these German settlements in Argentina, Bolivia, and elsewhere throughout South America would go on to become notorious safe havens for Nazi war criminals, such as Adolf Eichmann and Joseph Mengele, who sought to escape justice following the end of World War II. There are certainly plenty of stories of Nazis on the run worthy of an episode or two of their own. But for now, I'd like to turn your attention to one particular little colony in the foothills of Chile's Andes Mountains. Today it's called Villa Baviera, and here you'll find an idyllic little town with people decked out in lederhosen, and more than willing to offer you up trays of German beer and sausages. It's about a four-hour drive south from Chile's capital, Santiago. The land stretches over 70 square miles through fields of irrigated farmland and forested hills. It's a lush, picturesque landscape that the locals have attempted to capitalize on in order to attract tourists. Throughout town, 
you can find all sorts of touristy destinations, including several new restaurants, a wedding tent, playgrounds, and lots and lots of hot tubs. A double room in the town's luxury hotel will only set you back $65 a night. It comes complete with a comfy bed, flat-screen TV, and complimentary Wi-Fi. During your stay, you might try your luck at the family-friendly casino. Or perhaps you might want to do some horseback riding or biking along the forest trails. But not everything in the village is all schnitzel and rainbows. The truth is, this odd little village that seems so much out of place was actually founded on the blood of innocence. When it was founded in 1961 by a charismatic evangelical preacher named Paul Schaefer, the village was originally named the Colonia Dignidad, the Dignity Colony. Although that name is as far from reality as you can imagine. Back then, the colony became infamous for being home to a murderous cult responsible for some of the most horrific crimes in Chilean history. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from my private recording studio in the Hollow Earth. And this is The Conspirators. Although today the people of Colonia Dignidad have tried to open their doors and integrate themselves with the rest of Chile, for decades the colony tried to remain isolated from the rest of the world. In the early days, the only way to reach the colony was via a winding dirt road through a series of corn and wheat fields leading up to a razor wire fence and a gate staffed by armed guards. But from the beginning, despite the heavy security, the Colonia Dignidad could seem like an idyllic paradise. Inside the gates, the German residents lived in an orderly Bavarian-style village full of cream-colored buildings with orange-tiled roofs. The village contained a number of apartment complexes, flower gardens, a petting zoo, animal stables, a chapel, several meeting houses, a bakery, and two schools. They even had a couple of airplane landing strips to service visiting dignitaries. Elsewhere throughout the village, you could find a few assorted mills and factories, and even a hydroelectric power station. In fact, one of their most profitable gravel mills supplied raw materials for several road-building projects throughout Chile. On the north side of the colony stood a government-subsidized hospital where they offered free care to thousands of the country's poorest residents. But the quaint exterior was only skin-deep. There's an old Chilean television newsreel from 1981 that offers a rare glimpse inside the gates and showcases the happy little village and the happy little villagers who lived there. It begins with several shots of the lush forest up against the backdrop of the snow-capped mountains. Inside the Colonia Dignidad, you can see footage of the German residents blissfully going about their daily lives. Children laugh and frolic in the lake. Teenage boys happily toil in a field. A carpenter constructs a new chair for one of the schools. A woman in a white apron pulls a steaming tray of German pastries from an oven. Eventually the footage turns to focus on the colony's founder, a trim, serious-looking fellow with gray hair and one glass eye named Paul Schaefer. Whereas all the other villagers depicted in the footage are dressed in old-fashioned German peasant clothes, wool pants and suspenders for the men, long dresses and headscarves for the ladies. Schaefer stands out because he is dressed in modern attire, 
denoting his leadership status in the community. In the footage, Schaefer speaks in broken Spanish, proudly describing the community he built. He shows off the Colonia's flour mill, describing the fine German engineering behind the mill's machinery. He eventually leads the television crew to the petting zoo where the reporter feeds bread to the baby deer and stops to admire the collection of pet owls. The newsreel ends with an expert performance by the Colonia's 15-piece chamber orchestra, all of whom are young women dressed in colorful blouses and white skirts. But this newsreel footage was all theater, a show put on by Schaefer to hide the awful truth of the place. A joint investigation by Amnesty International and the governments of Chile, Germany, and France decades later revealed a laundry list of horrific crimes, including child molestation, kidnapping, money laundering, torture, forced labor, weapons trafficking, and murder. In the beginning, Schaefer and his team of trusted lieutenants used violence and intimidation to maintain control and condition the colonists to obey Schaefer's every command. Later, Following General Augusto Pinochet's military coup in Chile, Pinochet would form a devil's bargain with Schaefer to turn the Colonia Dignidad into a torture and execution camp for the disposal of the dictator's political enemies. Paul Schaefer was born in 1921 in the town of Troisdorf, near the Dutch border of Germany. He was a terrible student and was thought to be nearly illiterate throughout his life. He was also considered something of a clumsy oaf, Although he claimed to have lost his right eye as the result of a war wound, he actually injured himself when he was young by trying to untie a stubborn shoelace with a fork, accidentally gouging his own eye out in the process. He spent his time in the war working as a male nurse in a German field hospital in occupied France. Following Germany's surrender, he worked for a short while in the Evangelical Free Church as a youth leader. But he was soon fired when rumors began to spread that he had been abusing some of the boys in his care. After that, Schaefer set out on his own, decked out in lederhosen and with an acoustic guitar strapped over his shoulder. He soon began giving prayer meetings and enlisting followers to join his flock. This turned out to be where he shined. Schaefer was a naturally gifted speaker and a master manipulator. One former member of the Colonia Dignidad even described him as radiating charisma from his body like beams of light. By the 1950s, Schaefer had built up a sizable following of several hundred people. He soon founded an orphanage outside of Troisdorf for war widows and their children. Many of these women and children hailed from eastern Prussia, fleeing Soviet oppression. Schaefer welcomed them with open arms, telling them they were all God's children and that they were the chosen ones. He offered people a new sense of security and purpose in their lives that many were seeking following Germany's surrender. People who joined his congregation agreed to pay him 10% of their income and to make daily confessions of all their sins. But early on, Schaefer hit a stumbling block. It wasn't long before two mothers of young boys accused Schaefer of molesting their children. The accusations were taken seriously enough for the local authorities to issue an arrest warrant for him. But Schaefer fled the country before police could nab him. He first traveled to the Middle East where he and two of his trusted lieutenants began to study maps looking for a new place to relocate the congregation. He eventually crossed paths with the Chilean ambassador to Germany, 
who was unaware of the preacher's legal troubles back home. The ambassador invited Schaefer to come visit Chile, and from there the seeds of the Colonia Dignidad were laid. Schaefer arrived in Santiago, Chile in January 1961. Within a year he had used the funds he had accumulated back in Germany to purchase an abandoned 4,400-acre ranch several hundred miles south of the capital. He started with 10 original settlers, which, by the end of 1963, had grown to 230 German residents. Two more groups of German pilgrims would join them in later years. It turned out to be a perfect setup. In Germany, Schaefer's followers lived independently in their own homes throughout scattered towns and villages. But in Chile, they were all consolidated into one small area, with only Schaefer and his most trusted lieutenants to guide them. Once he was fully in charge, Schaefer quickly established a set of ground rules. He began by outlawing secrets between anyone. Private conversations between people were strictly forbidden. Schaefer informed his flock that gatherings of two people were the work of the devil, and only groups of three or more were approved by Jesus. He then added that every sin had to be confessed, no matter how large or small. He also locked down the compound, and insisted that no one could leave without his direct permission. Any violation of these rules would be severely punished. From there, everyone in the compound was put to work. Manual labor began for children as early as age seven. Colonists worked seven days a week and were only allowed a single day off per year. No one received any pay for their labor. Only Schaefer was allowed to profit off the goods the Colonia Dignidad produced. Beyond that, the colony was formed around the idea of shared resources for everyone. Along with ordering that everyone confess their own sins, Schaefer also encouraged members of his flock to spill the beans on one another as well. If anyone suspected another person of committing sin, he or she was expected to share that information publicly. Every day during lunch, members of the flock were encouraged to write the names of sinners on a blackboard near the entrance to the cafeteria. Then, during the meal, Schaefer would stand at a podium and recite the names off the list. Each sinner was then expected to stand up and confess what they had done. People named names at such an alarming rate that every one of the villagers soon learned it was in their best interests to make something up on the spot, or else the punishment could be severe. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well... I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. You may be wondering how Schaefer was able to maintain such tight control over his people. In short, the answer was fear. Schaefer taught his followers that there were two great evils in the world out to get them. One was the devil, the other was communism. Keep in mind many of the members of Schaefer's congregation had personally suffered tremendous losses at the hands of the Russians during World War II. These fears were only exacerbated because Schaefer strictly controlled all news of the outside world that came into the colony. According to Schaefer, 
The outside world was a sinful cesspool overrun by war, famine, and death brought on by the evil communists. To ensure that no knowledge of the outside world leaked in, Schaefer organized his own paramilitary unit of armed guards trained in martial arts and military tactics. The outer perimeter of Colonia Dignidad was surrounded by eight-foot fences topped with barbed wire. The guards patrolled the grounds 24 hours a day with trained attack dogs at their side. There were, of course, never any intruders. But even if someone had been foolish enough to try to sneak in, the land was also strung with hidden sensors that triggered a silent alarm. Most of the buildings throughout the compound came equipped with armored shades over the doors and windows that could be drawn shut in the event of an invasion. According to Schaefer's teaching, sex was the greatest sin of all in the eyes of God. Women were all temptresses and harlots whose sexuality was created to test men's wills and cause them to stray from God. Schaefer instructed his people that sexual intercourse was the tool of the devil. He made certain his colony was free from temptation by ordering the women to make themselves as unappealing as possible by wearing shapeless homemade dresses and to tuck their hair up into tight buns. But nature could not be fully denied. Occasionally, some men and women would make their romantic intentions known to Schaefer. But Schaefer remained fully in charge and would dictate whether a relationship between two people could continue. Sometimes he would even arbitrarily arrange marriages between individuals who had no romantic interest in one another. Couples were sometimes allowed to have children, but even this was rare. Most often, the women Schaefer chose to wed were beyond childbearing years. In the 30 or so years Schaefer remained in charge, only 60 children were born inside the Colonia Dignidad, and all of those were born before 1975. But at the same time, all these precautions worked against Schaefer as well. Because if there's one thing he desired more than almost any other, it was children. Any child born or brought to live in the Colonia Dignidad were immediately separated from their birth parents and raised in communal housing by one of the other adult women. Children throughout the colony were told that all adults were either their aunt or their uncle. Many children grew up in the Colonia Dignidad without ever knowing who their birth parents were. Schaefer himself became known as Tio Permanente, the permanent uncle. Despite the many atrocities committed inside the colony, it was the children who suffered worse under Schaefer than anyone. With no parents to protect them, Schaefer could do anything he wanted with them. And he did. Children lived in constant fear of the man. He sometimes liked to unleash his trained attack dogs on the kids, only pulling them back at the last moment. This made Schaefer both their greatest fear, as well as their savior. Sometimes children were punished by being denied food, yet still forced to sit in the cafeteria and watch as everyone else ate around them. Anyone caught trying to give the child food would be severely punished as well. First and foremost, though, Schaefer was a child molester, one who had built a place that gave him a constant supply of little boys at his disposal. With no law to stop him, Schaefer began molesting children with impunity. It's claimed Schaefer might molest as many as three or four boys in a single day. And remember, he remained in charge for more than 30 years. Children who fought back or otherwise broke the rules were taken to one of the buildings Schaefer used as his private torture chamber. There, the children would be stripped naked and subjected to repeated electric shocks all over their body with a cattle prod. 
But it wasn't just us children who suffered under Schaefer. He often turned to the adults throughout the community to single out and punish as well. Oftentimes there were individuals Schaefer and his lieutenants seemingly at random decided to make an example of. These rebels, as they were described, were forced to dress the part. Male rebels were made to stand out by wearing red shirts and white trousers, while women wore potato sacks over their long dresses. Everyone else was instructed to direct their hatred toward these people, even if it remained unclear why. One such rebel was a Chilean member of the colony named Franz Barr. Because of the low birth rate in the colony, and Schaefer's constant need for children, he made an arrangement with the Chilean authorities that allowed him to take in and raise children of impoverished families, where they would be taught to speak German and raised with new German names. Franz Barr was one of those. He was brought into the colony when he was 10 years old, but by the time he was a teenager, Schaefer had singled him out as a troublemaker. At one point while he was working in the carpentry shop, Barr was accused of stealing some keys to one of the dormitories. When he denied it, he was taken outside and beaten within an inch of his life with electrical cables, fracturing his skull. He awoke some time later in the Colonia's hospital where he would remain a prisoner for the next three decades. One of the ways alleged agitators like Barr were kept in line was by force-feeding them psychotropic drugs. His imprisonment began with being forced to undergo intravenous injections and would eventually turn to nurses bringing him trays full of pills he was forced to take on a daily basis. Even after that, Barr was still led by armed guards back to his job at the carpentry shop to work. But the pills and injections fogged his brain and made him clumsy. Today, Barr still bears a roadmap of scar tissue up and down his forearms where he slipped and cut himself with the electric saws. Part of how Schaefer managed to get away with all the atrocities committed inside the Colonia Dignidad for so long is because he had the full backing of the Chilean government. In 1973, Chile's president, Salvador Allende, was deposed in a military junta. Allende ended up committing suicide and his former army chief, Augusto Pinochet, rose to take his place. In the United States, President Richard Nixon's administration had worked behind the scenes to help create the conditions for the coup. And once Pinochet was in power, Nixon formally recognized the junta government and supported it all the way. Schaefer quickly formed his own alliance with Pinochet's government. Pinochet provided the Colonia Dignidad with an air of legitimacy and protection, and Schaefer gave Pinochet something he wanted in return as well. He provided a safe location where Pinochet's political enemies could be brought to be tortured and experimented on by Schaefer's men, as well as Chile's secret police. It's claimed that Schaefer and his men learned the art of torture from visiting Nazi war criminals who had escaped to South America following Germany's surrender. These included infamous Nazis such as Joseph Mengele and Walter Rauf, the man responsible for designing the gas chambers that killed millions of Jews. One political prisoner who lived to tell about his ordeal in the Colonia Dignidad was Luis Peebles. In 1975, Peebles was the commander of a clandestine anti-Pinochet militia. He was initially arrested and jailed at a naval base in the city of Concepcion. But one day, soldiers arrived at his cell who then bound his hands and feet and blindfolded him. Then they drove him in a truck to where he believes was the Colonia Dignidad. He was taken to an underground cellar that reeked of cleaning chemicals. 
He was stripped to his underwear and strapped down to a metal frame bed. Then his head was covered with a leather cap that covered his eyes and fitted around his jaw with a chin strap. Electrodes were hooked up to his ankles, thighs, chest, throat, genitals, and anus. Then they turned on the power. They tortured Peebles that first day by subjecting him to six hours of electric shocks. As the days wore on, they continued to administer regular electric shocks and sometimes beat him mercilessly with an electric cattle prod. Guards put out cigarettes on his bare flesh and applied a caustic, sticky substance to his eyes and mouth. Sometimes Peebles' torturers would demand he tell them about rebel tactics and where they could find caches of weapons. But for many long stretches, they asked no questions at all. They simply tortured him to torture him. Throughout his ordeal, Peebles said he sometimes overheard the men talking with one another. They often spoke German, but sometimes in Spanish as well. It became clear from what Peebles could pick up was that some of the people in the room were actually instructing his interrogators on proper torture techniques. Today, it's widely believed that some of the men instructing Pinochet's secret police on proper torture and interrogation techniques were former members of the Nazi SS and Gestapo. People said that although he was kept blindfolded for much of his time in captivity, sometimes when his body was being jerked around by the electric shocks, the cap in his head would come loose enough to catch a glimpse of his surroundings. It was during those brief glimpses he was able to identify Paul Schaefer as one of the men standing by calling the shots. Eventually, the torture stopped and Peebles was taken away from the Colonia Dignidad and returned to the naval base where they brought him from. Several months later, he was released, and from there he fled to Europe. Peebles told his story to Amnesty International. The group gathered stories like his from several survivors, and in 1977 they released a 60-page report about the atrocities that were still ongoing in the colony. Schaefer's lawyers immediately filed a libel suit that managed to drag on in the courts and prevent Amnesty International from releasing the report for another 20 years. Although it's widely believed many prisoners brought to the Colonia Dignidad were murdered, it's unknown how large that number may be. One former colonist later told Chilean government investigators that he was ordered by Schaefer to drive a busload of 35 political prisoners up into the Colonia's wooded hills, where he left them in an isolated spot by a dirt road. As he drove away, he could hear machine gun fire chattering in the distance. No bodies were ever recovered. One former high-ranking member of the colony later claimed that hundreds of bodies were exhumed in 1978, then burned to ash and scattered in a river. Although mass graves have been found throughout Chile tied to Augusto Pinochet's regime, it's impossible to know how many of these were directly related to the Colonia Dignidad. It's astonishing to consider how much death and torture took place in the colony without anyone ever attempting to do anything about it. People in authority were turning a blind eye as early as 1968, when a former colonist named Wolfgang Muller came forward with accusations of child molestation and torture going on inside the camp. But Schaefer's political connections made him virtually untouchable. In 1982, the German government, following evidence given to them by Amnesty International, made a formal inquiry about the colony to the Pinochet government. But that request was denied, as were two more a few years later. It was only after Pinochet's government collapsed in 1990 that Schaefer began to lose political support. 
The new democratically elected government cut off the Colonia's status as a nonprofit charitable organization and initiated an audit of the colony's business. The colonists, at Schaefer's insistence, immediately began hitting back by staging public protests and hunger strikes. But despite growing public outcry, Schaefer continued to operate with business more or less as usual throughout the next few years. In the early 1990s, with no new children being born in the camp, Schaefer knew he needed a fresh supply. So he began what he described as a radical new education initiative in which he invited Chilean students to come live, work, and study inside the colony. In 1996, a 12-year-old student named Cristobal Parada smuggled a note out to his parents telling them Schaefer had raped him and begged them to come save him. In August of 1996, a judge in Santiago issued an arrest warrant for Paul Schaefer on charges of child abuse. The case was given to the chief of Chile's National Detective Force, Luis Henriquez. He had once been one of Salvador Allende's bodyguards, and he was well acquainted with his country's history of government corruption. He pledged to follow the case against Schaefer to the bitter end, no matter how powerful Schaefer's friends were. Although he had hoped to catch Schaefer by surprise when he showed up at the Colonia with 30 armed men, they were spotted by guards as they busted through the gates. Enriquez expected a gunfight to break out then, but none did. He later recalled to reporters how the colonists behaved like zombies. Their emotions weren't like those of other people. One moment they'd be acting completely docile, then suddenly, out of the blue, they turned ferocious and attacked one of Enriquez's men. In the end, Enriquez left empty-handed. He didn't know it at the time, but Schaefer had been tipped off about the raid and had managed to hide out in one of the hidden underground tunnels beneath the colony. Over the following months, Enriquez conducted more than 30 raids on the Colonia Dignidad, but somehow Schaefer always managed to evade arrest. Even the colonists didn't know for certain when the man actually fled the country. One minute he was there, and the next he wasn't. The best anyone can tell is Schaefer was gone sometime around 1997. But even after he left, his senior lieutenants kept the colony going for some time after. As time passed, though, the control the lieutenants had over the colonists began to slip, and some of the residents began to cooperate with Enriquez and other authorities. They led police to Augusto Pinochet's secret files on kidnapping, torture, and murder. They showed them the vast underground bunkers and tunnels beneath the camp, and led them to secret weapons caches and massed graves. Although the graves they found were empty, they still found evidence buried in them that suggested several missing political dissidents had once been buried in them. In July of 2005, police found a massive stockpile of military weaponry that included hundreds of rifles, anti-personnel mines, grenades, and surface-to-air missiles. They also found a large collection of explosives and machine guns that had been built right there in the Colonia's own factories. They even found a cache of deadly chemical weapons, including sarin gas, in secret laboratories beneath the compound. In the late 2000s, a Chilean journalist named Carola Fuentes visited the former prisoner of the Colonia Dignidad, Franz Barr. He was the man I described earlier who had been held and drugged for 31 years. Fuentes and a lawyer from Chile who represented Barr and a number of the other abused boys in a class action lawsuit were given a tip that several high-ranking members of the colony were seen making frequent trips to a location in Argentina. Fuentes spent more than a year tracking down further leads and was eventually able to locate Paul Schaefer living in a townhouse in an expensive gated community near Buenos Aires. 
Police raided the community and Schaefer was arrested and extradited to Chile aboard a military transport plane. In May 2006, he was convicted of child molestation and sentenced to 20 years in prison. By now, he was a sickly old man, frail and wheelchair-bound. But even when he was questioned by authorities, he remained defiant and refused to talk about the horrendous acts he was responsible for. After being convicted of child molestation, he later received an additional seven-year sentence for weapons violations and three for torture. He died in prison on April 24, 2010. In 2011, Hartmut Hupp, a man considered to be Schaefer's top lieutenant at Colonia Dignidad, was placed under house arrest in Chile while awaiting trial for human rights crimes. In May of that year, Hopp fled Chile on a helicopter and eventually made his way back to Germany. In June 2016, German prosecutors petitioned a court to enforce a five-year prison sentence that Hopp had been sentenced to in absentia in Chile. In total, 16 German and Chilean members of the colony were prosecuted for their crimes. On January 2013, six former leaders of the colony were sentenced to prison, while 10 others were found guilty of lesser crimes and given probation. Today, many records about what happened at Colonia Dignidad remain classified as confidential in Chile's government. Many colonists still retained their German citizenship and went back to Germany. In 1991, the remaining colonists renamed the Colonia Dignidad to Villa Baviera. They threw open the gates and have tried to remake the village's image into a tourist destination. Nobody likes to talk much about what happened in the past. Throughout Chile, being born in the Colonia Dignidad is considered a public stigma. Although there are no placards or memorials to mark what happened in the colony, you can still find signs of what once was. Here and there, you can still find the faded remains of some of the original cream-colored buildings. And although it's generally frowned upon, you can even find your way down to some of the underground tunnels and former torture chambers that still exist. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Gabe, Loretta, Eric, and Kayla for supporting the show. Just a reminder that patrons to the show can get access to all sorts of awesome bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and access to our bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Besides Patreon, another great way you can help is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms and helps spread the word about the conspirators to more listeners. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find us on plenty of your other favorite podcast apps as well. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook as well, or even drop us a line at our email address, theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.